Good morning. <clears throat> Ladies, thank you for your lovely music. Would you pray with me? Oh, dear Father, there is none like you. I pray that we will see that. I pray that your spirit will be here helping us to understand your word and that you will be magnified in this room. That's our prayer this morning, and in the name of Jesus, we pray and ask, amen. In the year 2013, <clears throat> the Huffington Post ran an article by Caleb Bell. It was entitled, Poll Shows, Americans Love the Bible, But Don't Read It Much. In the article, he reported the results of the 2013 State of the Bible. The um, American Bible Society gives one of those every year. The report from that year showed that the Bible is still firmly rooted in American soil, with 88% of the respondents saying that they own a Bible. The re in fact, the average household owns 4.4 Bibles. That's a lot of Bibles. The report also stated that 77% of Americans think that the nation's morality is headed downward, that we're in a downward decline morally, which led the author to ask this, if the Bible is so commonplace in America, why isn't its moral teachings counteracting the downward trend? In other words, if the average household owns 4.4 Bibles, why isn't its teachings having a greater impact on our morality? That's a good question. And the report gave the answer. It seems that Americans own Bibles, we're just not reading them. According to the article, one in five claim to read the Bible with any regularity, and those that do read, 57% of them said they only read it four times a year or less. Last year's State of the Bible explained why we're not reading it. Number one reason we're not reading the Bible. Anybody want to guess? Lazy, can't understand. We're too busy. We're too busy. We're too busy with life's responsibility that continues to be the number one reason Bible readers give for their decrease in Bible engagement. Okay, now those were the statistics of Americans in general. What if we were to zoom in and focus on churchgoers? What would the statistics be like among churchgoers? Well, Lifeway Research did such a survey in 2015. And according to that survey, this is among churchgoers, a third say that they rarely or never read the Bible outside of church. Only 11% claim to read the Bible daily. It drops down to 3% for those that do any type of in-depth Bible study on a daily basis. So what hinders churchgoers from reading their Bibles on a daily basis? Same question was posed to them. What do you suppose the number one reason is that churchgoers do not read their Bibles? We're too busy. We're too busy. It seems churchgoers are too busy to meet with God. That brings me to today's topic. This morning we are going to examine our very first spiritual discipline, which is that of Bible intake. And if you have your Bibles or your books, you would have noticed that our book is going to spend two weeks on this. 
because this spiritual discipline of Bible intake is the most important, right? And we're actually going to make that our first point. Number one on your papers. No other spiritual discipline rivals the importance of intake of the word of God. Biblical intake is the most important. The Bible is where we learn about God. It's where we learn about the heart of God and the ways of God. It's, it's where we learn about the gospel. Okay, also, this discipline is the most broad. All the other disciplines that we study in the weeks to come are going to evolve or incorporate the word of God. Now, if you did your homework, you saw that the author divides the Bible intake into five categories. And I want to just go over them very quickly. I have a place for you to mark them down on your handout. All right, the first one, A, is hearing. That's typically the most, the easiest one. You're at Sunday school, you hear a preacher, you're hearing the word of God. All right, B, you have reading. This is going to require a little more uh, work on your part, but you're going to be reading the word of God. All right, C is studying. Now, the author says the biggest difference between reading and studying is a pen and a notebook. With studying, you're slowing down. You're marking words. You're making lists. You're doing some digging. All right, then you have D. Do we come to memorizing the scripture, committing scripture to memory? And then lastly, we have meditating on the scripture. <clears throat> now, next week or the next time we meet, we're going to be doing some real digging on these last two last three, but particularly the last two. Now, if you read the book, the author gave a great example of a cup of tea, and he likened the tea bag to God and, and the hot water to us. And he said, boy, when you're reading, when you're hearing, it's like dunking that tea bag into the water. And studying the word of God, that's just like swirling that tea bag around. And then letting it steep in the water, that he likened to meditating and memorizing where, where, where that tea bag really starts to, where the water really starts to take on the look and the flavor of the tea bag. Okay, now take a look at those five things. The Center for Bible Engagement, they've been researching this topic for several years, and this is what they've concluded. I actually have the quote on your paper. They say, for Christ followers, regularly hearing from God through his word is the single most powerful predictor of spiritual growth. Okay, Bible engagement, that's those five things. Your Bible intake, they say, is the key to spiritual growth. Now, here's how they define spiritual growth, being conformed to the image of Christ. And they're saying that the key number is four to five days a week of consistent biblical engagement that is the most powerful predictor of your spiritual growth. Now, now they are really just confirming what all your Sunday school teachers have been saying for years. That apart from you knowing the word of God, you cannot grow. All right, now here's the next point, and this is from our book. Number two, no factor is more influential in making us more like the Son of God than the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. Okay, do you see the dilemma? We cannot grow spiritually without knowing the Word of God, but when it comes to knowing the Word of God, by our own admission, we're not taking the time to read it. 
were too busy. Researchers were too busy to read it, much less study it and memorize it. The researchers have found that our busy, hectic lives keep us from reading, not to mention other distractions like the TV and the internet and work obligations. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Haggai chapter 1? We want to look at a passage that is going to address this this morning. You may need your table of contents to find this little guy. <laughs> little chapter in the middle of the minor prophets. I want to warn you, this is a, this is a tough passage. <clears throat> Haggai chapter 1, here we go. Haggai 1 verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king... In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai, the prophet of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoiadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time? For you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies in ruins. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns a wage does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus the Lord of hosts Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Let's start with some background on this. Let's put this book in its context, because that'll help. If you are familiar with the history of Israel, you know that the nation splits into two. The, the southern nation known as Israel, they are conquered by the Babylonians in 586 BC. The Babylonians come in, they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, and then they take the people and they carry them off into captivity. And they transplant them and transport them and put them in various places throughout the kingdom. Now, this was not a surprise to them because God had warned them about their sin and their idolatry. Now, the good news is that he told them that he would cause them to return. He would bring them back in 70 years. And so, sure enough, 70 years later, God raises up a king that decrees that the Jews are allowed to return to their homeland and build the temple. Now, we can read about that in the book of Ezra. 
The book of Ezra, the book of Haggai go together. The book of Ezra teaches us and tells us about this small remnant of Jews that is allowed to return back to their homeland. And they do. They, they're coming from Babylon or Persia, as it was called at the time. They get back. They begin to repair the temple, repair the altar. They reinstate sacrifices, and then they start to rebuild the temple. The problem is they hit, uh, they hit some opposition. And so the building stops. And there's about 14 to 16 years where there is no building. And the temple of God lies in ruins. All right? That's where Haggai picks up. All right, now notice what he says. I want you to look in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house. Okay, now remember, it's been about 14 years or so and nobody's been working on the temple and God confronts them about it. He says, you were carried away because of your sin, but I brought you back. I allowed you to come home. I kept my promise. Why is it my temple stays in ruins? Why has it been 14 years and no one has been building the temple? And notice how the people answer. They say, the time has not come. The time has not yet come. We don't have time. We're too busy. Now notice what God says in verse 4. <clears throat> he says, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Paneled houses were a luxury. You see, in order to acquire the paneling, that had to be imported from Lebanon. It indicated their comfort and prosperity and that their homes were complete. Let me attempt to put this in a more modern vernacular. <clears throat> Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in homes with granite countertops? Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in homes with big screen TVs or perfectly decorated nurseries? Is it time for you yourselves <clears throat> to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? You see, they apparently had time to build lovely homes but did not have time to build the temple. Now, what's this about money? Is this about money or the way they're spending and not giving to the building fund or the way they're spending their money on their homes and not giving to the building funds? What, what's the big deal? Well, it helps if we understand a little bit about the temple. <clears throat> okay, now turn with me. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. Keep your finger in Haggai. We're going back to Exodus 25. Exodus 25, verse 2 says this. <clears throat> Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. All right, now jump down to verse 8. That'll tell us what the contribution is for. Verse 8. <clears throat> 
and let them make me a sanctuary. Now here's why. That I may dwell in their midst. All right, now flip over to chapter 40. Same book, Exodus 40, verse 33. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. All right, now what we, we want to understand, like I said, this is a quick little lesson on this, but the sanctuary and the tabernacle, that's describing the same place. It's describing a portable temple. Now, King David, he's going to come along and want to build a permanent temple. He will not be allowed. That will be Solomon that does that. And there's a number of different verses that we could look up here. But what I want us to understand, that in Jewish life, everything evolved around the temple. The temple was the center of worship. God gave very specific instructions on how the temple was to be built. He said, build it this way because this is where I will meet with you. This is where I will dwell. This is where my glory will reside. Now, God had just brought the people out of captivity, and he gave them an opportunity to rebuild the temple so that he could dwell upon them, so he could meet with them. And what was their response? Their response was, now is not the time. We're too busy. His presence, his glory among them was not a priority. Now, I want you to see what else we learn about their lives. Verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. In other words, you're working all the time, but you got nothing to show for it. Verse 6 says, you eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. He says, you're just spinning your wheels. You're working and you're working and you're doing all this stuff and you're just putting it into a bag with holes. And then he says, you eat, but you're not filled. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. All right, this is a a description of frustration and dissatisfaction. There's no contentment. Things are being done in vain. You are spending your life filling a bag with holes. Do you ever feel that way? Notice what he says in verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. He says, you plan and you work and you do all these things. And then when you bring it home at the end of the day, I, I blow on it. I bring it to nothing. Now, why? Why does he do that? Well, he tells us in verse 9. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Why did God blow on it? Why did he allow them to spin their wheels? Why did he allow them to not know satisfaction or contentment and to be filled with frustration? Because God was not a priority. God's presence was not a priority. They didn't have time for him. They were too busy. Verse 10 tells us some more. 
Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. There is some great irony here because you have God pointing out to them that he is the one that sends the rain and he is the one that makes their ground to produce food for them. He is the God of the universe and yet they say, not now. We can't make you a priority. We're, we're so busy. We have, we have so much, we have all this stuff we have to do. We have busy lives that we have to think about. And by the way, in case you haven't noticed, we're farmers. And so we have to go out there and plow and, and, and sow and do all this farming things so that we can have produce. And God says to them, I am the God that sends the rain. I am the God that makes your crops grow. How is it that you do not have time for me? when it would be for your own good. One uh, day when the kids were little, I woke up with very big plans to get up and get a bunch of stuff done. And I was uh, cleaning up the kitchen, opened the refrigerator door to put something in it, and just lickety-split. I don't know what happened, but in a split second, I had spilled an entire half gallon of sweet tea it just, it exploded. It, it literally looked as if someone had taken a hose and just sprayed down the kitchen. It was on every can and jar in the refrigerator. It was on the floor. It was under the floor. It was on walls. It was on pictures. It was on cabinets and toys. It just, it was everywhere. Little side note, on my way today, I did the same thing today. I spilled a big thing of tea. But you know what? It just landed in one little spot. <laughs> I was. But on that morning, I'm looking at this sprayed kitchen, and I just looked at it and thought, this is how I will spend my day. And so it was. I got my bucket and my rag, and I just started scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing, and I'm down on the floor on my hands and knees, and it occurs to me, Lord, you are the one that gives me my time, and you are the one that protects my time. You are the one that makes me productive. And were it not for the grace of God, I would be one sweet tea explosion after another. The reality, the, the very fact that I get from point A to point B without incident is but the grace of God. Ladies, how is it that we go to a God who is sovereign over every activity of our lives? How do we go to a God who is sovereign over all the details of our lives and tell him, we don't have time for you. You're just not a priority. <sighs> okay. I want to read to you something that Francis Chan wrote. He said, God literally determines whether or not you take another breath. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Could anything be more important than meeting with the God who decides if you live through this day? Could anything be better? How can we not make time to be with the maker of time. The people in Haggai's day were basically telling the maker of time, we don't have time for you. Let's make that our next point. We must not tell 
the maker of time, we have no time. Okay, <clears throat> let's pull this together. Why study this passage today? What does this passage have to do with the spiritual discipline of Bible intake? Well, this is how it connects. The number one way that a believer with the indwelling Holy Spirit meets with God is in his word. Can you meet with God during a walk in the woods or while you're folding your laundry or while you're driving in a car? Absolutely. God is spirit. God is spirit, and we are not limited geographically, but we need to understand that the primary means that God uses to meet with us is in his word. Okay, now here's our next point. <clears throat> it's from the author in a different book that he wrote. He wrote the book, Simplify Your Spiritual Life. <clears throat> he writes this. Number four, scripture itself teaches the main method of meeting God is through scripture. If we are to make God a priority, if we are to make meeting with God a priority, then the word of God will be a priority. Listen to what the Center for Bible Engagement had to say. Consistent with other studies, we find a disconnect between respondents' expressed beliefs about the importance of the Bible and their reading habits. In other words, people will say that the Bible is important, and yet they don't read it. There's a disconnect. There is also a, a need to make a connection between God and his word. Kay Arthur is famous for pointing out that you cannot say that God is a priority in your life if God's word is not a priority in your life. Here's our next point. If God is to be a priority, then his word will be a priority. Okay, back to Haggai. What was the remedy? What were the people to do? <clears throat> what did God say to them? Look at verse five. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. All right, so what were they to do? Consider your ways. Go up to the hills, get the wood, get the building started, get the, pro the, the building supplies that you need and build, start obeying so that I can take pleasure in it. Listen again to what Francis Chan says. Something has to go. There is no substitute for being alone with God. If you don't have the time, you need to quit something to make room. Skip a meal, cancel a meeting, end some regular commitment. There is literally nothing more important you could do today. That's making preparation. <clears throat> what kind of preparation what kind of changes do you need to make in order to make God, meeting with God, a priority? What kind of preparation do you need to make Bible engagement a priority? 
Now, in this room, as a teacher, I know there are often um, new moms, nursing moms, pregnant women. I, I'm not comfortable telling you to skip meals or sleep. You, you need those things right now. But don't miss what she's saying or he's saying. Okay? He's saying that meeting with God needs to be a priority in our life, and that generally means that something's got to go. Here's our next point. Number six. Making God a priority in our lives generally means that something has to go. Now, I want you to notice the repeated phrase that we keep seeing in verse 5 and 7. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. He's telling them, open your eyes. Make the connection. He wants them to see and make the connection between all the, the stress and the frustration and the discontent and, the, and the, uh, uh, the dissatisfaction. He wants them to make the connection between that and the fact that they're not building the temple. Now notice what he says, because he is taking responsibility for this. Look at verse 11. He says, I have called for the drought on the land and the hills and on the grain and the new wine and the oil. He says, take a look at around you because this is my doing. This is my doing. He says, you are having these problems and these issues because you do not make me a priority in your life. You know, sometimes the problems that we experience are just the natural consequences of living in a fallen world outside of the garden. And sometimes our problems are of our own doing because our priorities are off. Here's our next point. Number seven, consider your ways. Make the connection. We want to be so careful to do this. We need to take a hard look at our lives and what's going on and examine our priorities. All right, God tells them to go to the mountains and get the woods. Okay, what do you need to do to get your ducks in, or in a row? So that you could make meeting God a priority on a regular basis. <coughs> now, um, if you ask people that have been faithful to have for the spiritual discipline of Bible intake and meeting with God, there are a couple of reoccurring ideas that show up. And we want to go over a few of those today. Number one, first of all, no, no. We talked, no, back up here. We talked about this last week. We said we need to be intentional because spiritual discipline does not happen accidentally. Corey Ten Boom is famous for saying, make an appointment with God and then keep it. Ladies, get out your calendar. Set, set a designated time aside and then keep it. One um, lady had some excellent advice. She says that she has a set time that she meets with the Lord. That's plan A. But then she also has plan B. So that if the, the babies wake up early or, the, uh, or they don't sleep through the night or something like that, and you wake up, you don't get to have plan A, then you go to plan B. And you might have to have a plan C. And that's okay. But number eight, make an appointment. All right, it's also strongly suggested that you have some type of reading plan. Those people that wake up and go, hmm, what should I read today? Okay, that it just doesn't work very well. Okay, so next point, number nine, have a reading plan. You want to be working systematically through the whole Bible because you need to know the whole Bible. 
Ideally, you would have a reading plan and maybe one for studying as well. Um, now, your meeting time is going to include more than just Bible reading. There'll be prayer and worship, perhaps some journaling. These are all some things that we'll be talking about in the weeks to come. But for this morning, the big thing with Bible intake is to have some type of, of plan. Um, also, we said earlier, hearing is a way for us to take in for Bible intake to occur. Nowadays, thanks to the internet, you can listen to any translation, any time of the day. And so I would suggest a hearing plan. Um, especially if you're a new mom that doesn't get to sleep much, doesn't get to sit down much, boy, this, could, this might be a season in your life where you can take advantage of a good hearing plan. Okay, in addition to a meeting time and a reading place, it is a good reading plan. It is a good idea to have a meeting place. So number 10, designate a meeting place. I have a desk next to my kitchen where I kind of put all the mail and my lists and my calendars and the bills and the paperwork and there's laundry and toys on there. Okay, I don't have my quiet time there. Okay. That would just be like overload and it would take me too long to get to the bottom, uh, find a space. So I have a designated place and it's got my Bible and my note cards and my highlighters and my notebook. It's ready to go, free from distraction. So, so have, have a meeting place. If you can't have a meeting place, I, I heard one girl recommend she's got a basket and she keeps all of her um, quiet time materials in it. And that way, when she wakes up, she finds a quiet place, takes her, takes her basket with her. Okay, Nancy Lee DeMoss writes this. She says, the more I study the word and the ways of God, the more convinced I am of the importance of starting the day with him. The scriptural case for a morning watch is hard to refute. Hudson Taylor adds this, do not have your concert first and tune your instruments afterward. Begin the day with God. When is the best time to have your quiet alone time with God? Well, we could make a very strong case from the scriptures and just other believers historically that it would be as soon as you get up in the morning, first thing. Um, that would be plan A. Um, Nancy Lee DeMoss has some advice for us. She writes this, and it's our point 11. Success in meeting God in the morning begins the night before. She tells the story of how she grew up watching her dad have a daily quiet time every morning. He would spend an hour with the Lord before he went to work. And she said that meant that he had to go to bed, that he had to stop what he was doing every night at 10 o'clock. No matter what was going on, he excused himself at 10 o'clock so that he could go and get ready for bed and, and be in bed by 11. So she watched that. Now, I know for me, I didn't, as a mom, I didn't always have the luxury of just walking away from everything at 10 o'clock at night. And, um, and you may have a similar situation, but <clears throat> we don't want to miss her point. And that is, there are some things that we do have control over and that we really need to be thinking the night before about that appointment with God in the morning. Okay, let's go back to Haggai. God hit them hard with some truth. Now, we want to take a look at how the people in Haggai's days respond. So we want to pick up in chapter, verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 11. I want you to do two things. I want you to watch for what the people do, and I want you to watch for what God does. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, 
<clears throat> and Joshua the son of Jehoiadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the, with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoiadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. <clears throat> okay, what do the people do? They, they repent. This is repentance. They repent and they obey. And what does God do? It says he stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people. He stirred up the spirit. Ladies, that's grace. That's grace. He gives them the desire and the power to obey. Do you know that is exactly what God does for his followers today? He takes a dead, cold heart of stone and he transforms it into a heart of flesh and the bible says he writes his law upon it so that we have a heart to obey him you see we can't even make god a priority and obey him apart from the grace of god it would be so easy so easy to leave here after a lesson like this and after a passage like this and feel so beat up and overwhelmed because this, this passage is brutal. It's, it's convicting. It exposes our depravity and our sin. But we don't want to miss the grace because this is a passage about the grace of God. This is a passage about how God wants to meet with his people. He wants to dwell in their midst. He wants their glory to be in their midst. But they're preoccupied. And so what does he do? He withholds the rain. He, withhold, he withholds the rain. And, and, and he allows them to be frustrated and stressed and discontent and in order to get their attention. And then what does he do after he gets their attention? He puts his grace on display. He puts his grace on display. He gives them the power to obey him. He gives them the spirit to obey him. Ladies, he will do that for us. He will do that for us. There is grace. We don't want to forget that. Number 12, we can have hope because God provides grace. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we're so thankful that you don't just hit us with our, a look at our depravity and our sin without just the beautiful promise and picture and trophy of grace. We thank you for the grace of God, and I pray that the women here will just get such a taste of it and such a desire to meet with you and spend time with you and pour over your word and, and know, know the pleasure of it. And Father, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.